In 1981, the Los Angeles Dodgers asked Fernando Valenzuela to be their starter for opening day. No one expected much of the Mexican rookie. He wore big glasses, had a belly, and didn't even speak English. But Valenzuela won that day with a dominating performance. And won again. And again. He ended up earning the National League Cy Young Award, that goes to the best pitcher each season, and the Rookie of the Year trophy. And the Dodgers won their first World Series in 16 years. But more than just baseball, Fernando Valenzuela uncorked a full-fledged revolution. Even if you don't like sports, even if you're a Yankees fan, hell, even if you're a Giants fan from San Francisco, you know all about the legacy of Valenzuela's magical year from so long ago. And you gotta call it by this name, Fernando Mania. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is May 26, 2021. A Manhattan grand jury convenes to weigh criminal charges against former President Donald Trump and his companies. Joe Biden is scheduled to meet Russia President Vladimir Putin next month in Geneva. And a woman in Texas jumps into a monkey pen to feed them flaming Hot Cheetos. Will Eva Longoria make a movie about her? Baseball, Los Angeles, Latinos, sports, none have ever been the same since Valenzuela dominated batters four decades ago. He helped to make the national pastime international. He bridged racial divides in LA and gave Latinos a hero that everyone could embrace. The LA Times is telling the full story with Fernando Mania at 40. It's a documentary that you could find on latimes.com and new episodes are released every couple of weeks. Today, we talk to LA Times sports columnist Dylan Hernandez about why one season from decades ago continues to have such a deep influence. But first, just where did this young Mexican ballplayer Fernando come from? Well, it wasn't East LA or even Santana. It was Northwest Mexico, a little town called Echoaquila. By the time Fernando was a young teenager, says Dylan Hernandez, the baseball scouts were taking notice. Well, he was a teenager pitching in the Mexican League. Uh, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, Walter O'Malley, the owner of the team, knew the demographics in Los Angeles and had this vision of a Mexican Sandy Koufax. The legendary Dodgers left-hander from the 60s. Correct. You know, and, you know, over the years there were, right, there were scouts that were sent down there. Word came back about this 17-year-old left-handed pitcher. Here's Valenzuela in his own words from the Fernando Mania at 40 documentary. So almost 16 years old, that's when I signed my first professional contract. And um, from that point, uh, I told myself, well, now it's a career. It's not um, just for fun. The scout down there, uh, Corito Verona, sent word back to O'Malley about, hey, you might want to take a look at this guy. He was, again, at that point, he's just kind of a prospect, right? Uh, 17 years old, they sign him. A couple years later, he's in the big leagues. People talk about the Fernando Mania being 1981. But, uh, you know, you talk to some people that will argue that it really started in the fall of 1980 when he was called up at the end of the uh, 1980 regular season and pitched in relief a couple of times. The feeling was that he kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, that was uh, 79 when I was uh, got signed by the Dodgers. And then really, uh, Mike Virgo, he's the one uh make the contact with uh, my team in Mexico. And, and they decide, you know, to um, to send me to uh, to minor leagues with the Dodgers. And so make me happy, you know, to, um, to be part of the um, one uh, big league organization. So Fernando, here's this Mexican rookie. 
He gets to the Dodgers. As you said, he pitches a couple games at the end of the 1980 season, becomes full-time in 81, and he immediately dominates baseball. How historic was his performance that year? He won, what is it, his first seven starts, is it? I think out of those, I think six complete games or something, and the other one was like an extra inning game where he did go nine. Uh, you know, it, it really was about performance, and he was really that dominant. He came with a screwball, which is a pitch that's kind of used less and less, and I'm not really sure if anybody even throws it today. And, and the screwball, basically, if you know how to pitch it well, it's almost unhittable. Yeah, you know, and it's really kind of hard to pick up the rotation. And the one thing, you know, is that the I think what's a little bit deceptive, uh, you know, with Valenzuela is obviously he's a little bit of kind of a heavier set guy. But people that played with him will tell you that this guy was a phenomenal athlete. He was also a very good hitter. You know, he was a very good fielder. And so, yeah, he was able to kind of take this pitch. And uh, really, you know, nobody had any answers for him in that first year. And if you look at those early years and the types of numbers, he put up in terms of how many innings he pitched. The workloads were crazy uh, back then compared to what they are right now. You look at his first like five, six complete seasons, the amount that he pitched, the, the number of complete games that he threw is something even, you know, that today uh, you would see nobody come close to doing. It wasn't just that Fernando was a winner. Everyone likes a winner, but it was the type of winner he was. He was a Mexican who was winning in the United States. And so that's where the phenomenon of Fernando Mania starts popping up. Fans across the country, they start going to games where the Dodgers are playing on the road. But at home, of course, the Dodgers State, you know, Dodgers State was going to get packed. But the crowd was now, it was, it was a crowd that the Dodgers had never seen before. More and more Latinos. And you mentioned earlier, you hinted at this historical strain between Latinos and Dodgers. What was at the root of that? Yeah, so the land on which Dodger Stadium now sits used to be a uh, Mexican and Mexican-American neighborhood. And, uh, you know, the government used eminent domain, which is basically kind of the power to kind of seize land, right, when, you know, when it's for the public good, so to speak. This was in the 1950s, and it was for a housing development. People were given money for their homes, oftentimes below market value. People that resisted in the end, I mean, you know, there were images shown, right, of people getting dragged out of their houses. Ultimately, you know, when the Dodgers decided to move out here, and that was a site that was chosen to uh, place Dodger Stadium. So, you know, at that time, it was still, you know, Dodger Stadium was a team of the white man, so to speak. And obviously, Fernando Valenzuela changed that dynamic completely. What happened to Latino residents of Chavez Ravine left deep, painful scars that linger to this day. Here's former L.A. County Supervisor Gloria Molina from the L.A. Times series Fernando Mania at 40. And of course, everybody told him it was for the better good of public housing and so on. I had uh, three staff people that had lived in, in Chavez Ravine. One who was still extremely bitter about what happened during that time, who still would not go to a game because of Chavez Ravine. This is an infamous moment in L.A. history, in Mexican-American history in the United States. There's been plays written about Chavez Ravine, CDs, there was records, there was films, documentaries, so much made about Chavez Ravine. And this, this historical legacy, we're thinking about this 1950s, for almost 25 years, Latinos in Los Angeles basically refused to root for the Dodgers. Then all of a sudden, here comes this, you know, gordito Mexican winning games like crazy. The fact that he was a Mexican national as opposed to a Mexican-American, too. At this time, I think that kind of one of the unspoken impacts, at least at the time, there's always been kind of division between, say, Mexican-Americans and Mexican nationals. And he kind of provided, you know, a unifying point, so to speak. 
he really just kind of changed the dynamic of like who the Dodger fan is. I know that for the 30th anniversary, when I when I wrote a story about this, uh, you know, at that time, the Dodgers were estimating that 40 percent of their fan base was Latino. Uh, my guess is right now that it's probably closer to 50. This is a very loyal fan base. You know, when the Dodgers were owned by Frank McCord and he wasn't putting money into the team and they were bad. You know what? They still drew three million fans every single year. It did not matter. You know, it's it's definitely changed the the atmosphere of Dodger Stadium. And what do you think those Latino fans saw in Fernando? Yeah, I think that they probably saw somebody very relatable, right? I mean, he looks like a guy that you would see kind of down the street. He was kind of very everymanish in some way. A lot of times athletes... You look at them and, you know, the, the better players a lot of times look like Superman, right? This guy was kind of the opposite. He could have been your uncle. Yeah, your primo, like your uh, your cousin or your primo fidencio or someone. Yeah, right. I mean, everybody, I think, kind of knew somebody, you know, who looked like him and spoke like him and joked the way he did, you know. And so uh, I think that that was obviously one of the one of the kind of big points of appeal there, too. In the documentary, Fernando Mania at 40, we talk about all just how it spools out this influence. And one of the big influences, of course, is just how Fernando also opened up the game of baseball to Latin America. Nowadays, Major League Baseball is about 25% Latino. And Latinos had always been a part of the sport. But after Fernando Mania, that's when it seemed every baseball team wanted to get their own Fernando. Yeah, you know, the Dodgers, again, were very much pioneers in in that field, right? They uh, set up an academy in the Dominican Republic, and there was a point where pretty much every Dominican prospect that came up would end up with the Dodgers. Uh, now, obviously, as time has gone on, other teams realize, you know what, this is a great source of talent, and so everybody's set up there. But yeah, it definitely opened up Latin America. I would argue it even opened up Asia. So I do think that that uh, legacy, uh, that really pays off. Fernando Mania was such a thing that President Ronald Reagan wanted to meet Fernando. So when the president of Mexico went to go visit Ronald Reagan in the White House, Fernando Valenzuela was there right alongside with them. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's speculation on some points, but obviously Reagan was enamored. Reagan realized, like, look, you know, in the United States and Mexico has always had a contentious relationship. But here we have this, uh, you know, this young Mexican pitcher who's doing so many great things in national pastime. I think Mexicans actually could do good for this country. And then in 1986, you have an amnesty that legalized three million undocumented immigrants. So, I mean, that's just another part of Fernando that very few people know about. Basically, Reagan's entire cabinet was lined up there, you know, with baseballs in hand because they just wanted an autograph from the guy. (laughs) We'll be right back after this break. Mexican-American kids like me grew up idolizing Fernando. And older guys like actors Danny Trejo and Richard Montoya did too. Montoya wasn't even from L.A. He was a young San Francisco Giants fan up in the Bay Area when Fernando began pitching. But he didn't have that NorCal Dodger hate for Fernando like others. Here's him and Trejo from Fernando Mania at 40. Montoya speaks first. It was like uh, watching Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve or, you know, it's hushed, sit, nobody talk, nobody move. Today, we're pulling for the Mexican with Dodger blue on. But, Dad, we have our Giants hats on. Shut up. Put those away. It became, you had to go to the game. And, and, and literally, when the police would stop you, if Fernando was playing, they wouldn't say, what are you doing? they go, why aren't you at the park? You know, because <laughs> you were doing something wrong if you weren't at the baseball park. It's first wave Latino Fernando fans like Trejo Montoya and their kids who make up a big part of the Dodgers fan base now. Here's my fellow L.A. Times columnist, Dylan Hernandez. 
that's kind of that fan base. It's the children of Fernando's fans now have kind of the earning power and have been able to kind of influence, right, things more, right? There's, the programming is directed more. You know, we have chips now with, like, lime and stuff on them, right? Um, flaming hot Cheetos. Flaming hot Cheetos, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other one, right? But uh, I think you can, you know, when you, when you kind of look at the genesis of all these things, right, you can kind of point back to Fernando Valenzuela, as a bit of a turning point there. And you and I are that exact generation, the children of the Fernando's fans. And both of us were too young to remember anything about Fernando mania in 1981, but we were definitely part of, you know, we, we definitely have memories of Fernando when he was still a really good pitcher for the Dodgers. So, so how was Fernando received in your family? What, what were your memories as a kid of Fernando Valenzuela? My dad's from El Salvador. So to be honest, it wasn't like the biggest thing. Um, but, uh, you know, and also my, you know, my dad moved here uh, in the late 1950s, you know, so he grew up like in the Echo Park area, always kind of cheered for the Dodgers. And, you know, my honestly, my first memory uh, of that was kind of more Kirk Gibson that because before that, I just kind of didn't pay attention. Kirk Gibson, who hit a famous home run that helped the Dodgers win the 1988 World Series. Obviously, I see Fernando at the park all the time. You understand, I think, you know, what people like that did for people like us. And Fernando probably took it to like a different level in that people wanted to be him, right? People who weren't Mexican, people who weren't Latino still wanted to be Fernando Valenzuela. And I do think if you go back 40 years, probably it would be unthinkable for a, you know, a Latino Dodgers beat writer or a columnist at the Times. Um, whereas now it's just kind of, it was nothing, right? Um, you know, I got, I had maybe about like a month when I started, when I took over the Dodgers beat in 2007, where, you know, they, maybe the email was like kind of a little racist. But um, after that, right, it's kind of been nothing. I don't think anyone's blinked twice right now. Jorge Castillo, you know, who's a Puerto Rican American guy, is covering the team for us, doing a great job. And again, I don't think that that ever really kind of comes up at all. Your perspective growing up with Fernando, for me, Fernando was like a god, like all of us young Mexican-American boys. My dad was an immigrant from Mexico, working class. And when like the family would get together, they tell all of us boys, you know, pichea como Fernando, pitch like Fernando. So we would do the whole like put your hands up in the air, look to the sky, try to do a screwball and have all these contests about him. I, he was just he was a legend. He he was an absolute legend. I, and I think the reason why my dad liked him so much again, because my dad looked like him. He was brown. He was working class. He. In a way, the opposite of your dad, he never dressed nice. I mean, his his idea of be, being nice was wearing a big Stetson. It was, but like it, now it was okay. Fernando made it okay for you to be Mexican. Yeah, you know, and again, I, I think that now, and when when you go to the ballpark now too, right, the atmosphere is just completely different. You, you hear a lot of, you know, Mexican, Latin American music at the ballpark now. So, uh, yeah, you know, and you, again, you see, I think to this day, just kind of the, the influence there, you know, and I've always argued, I thought, you know, kind of at the end of every season that the Dodgers probably owe Fernando like a $10 million check or something, right? We forget the, the bad years that this organization had under the Fox ownership, under the McCourt ownership, when again, you know, the owners weren't investing money into the team to, to put the best team out there available. Um, you know, Fernando, I really do think helped in some ways keep this franchise afloat. Dylan, what's Fernando up to nowadays? I know he's a broadcaster for the Dodgers on television, or was it radio? Well, they're simulcasting now, starting this season. They started to simulcast. So, uh, yeah, he, they, they initially brought him on to do radio. 
then I think the last couple of years he did TV, and now that they're simulcasting, he's doing both. So, yeah, he's been a regular presence at the ballpark now for, I would say, probably the last, like, 20 years or so. You know, he had kind of a ugly breakup, so to speak, with the Dodgers. Um, you know, he was owed, I believe, a bonus of like two, three million dollars at one point, you know, had, had he just made the roster. And uh, right before that, uh, in spring training, when their team was at Vero Beach, he got cut by Tommy Lasorda. And so that led to kind of this estrangement, right? I think he probably felt, look, like I threw like a billion innings for you guys. The contracts in baseball weren't in the 80s what they are right now. These guys were not making hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think he, you know, rightfully felt that he was kind of owed something. And uh, so that kind of led to this estrangement. Uh, Derek Hall, who at the time was a VP of communications, who now works for the, he's now the president of the Arizona Diamondbacks, reached out to Fernando, uh, you know, brought him back into the fold. And I would argue that, again, that's one of been one of the big successes for the Dodgers in the last 20 years here. You know, in a lot of the games, they'll pan up to the press box in the broadcast booth where Fernando is. You know, they'll play some music, maybe show a video, and he'll wave to the crowd, and he'll usually get a standing ovation. He's around the park, uh, still very much a beloved figure. Yeah, he has that star power. I mean, my my uncle always runs into him at the Montebello golf course just because he loves to play golf. And, they, you know, the nickname in Spanish for him is El Toro, the bull. So they'll say, Toro, Toro, Toro. And he'll sign the autographs. Like, for all the fame that he had 40 years ago, he still has it today, and he's still very humble about it. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, one one thing that you see a lot with, uh, you know, former ball players or people who used to be in the limelight is that they still are really thirsty for that. Uh, the one thing about Fernando and what I like about him is, like, you could tell, like, he's got, like, legitimate confidence, right? This isn't, like, him pretending to be somebody. There is something different about him that you notice where, you know, if, if you don't want to talk to him, fine. If you, if you go talk to him, obviously, he's very friendly. There's something there inside of him that makes him different, I think, than a lot of uh, a lot of former players. And you can understand, I think, when you get to know him, how he was able to accomplish as much as he did, you know, kind of coming out of nowhere and, you know, and excelling at the highest level of the sport. And then the last question, Dylan, Fernando never again reached the heights that he had in 1981. He did have great years for the Dodgers, but... Toward the end, as you said earlier, he ultimately didn't amount to uh, you know a big career. The what the 1981 season had that promise. So, nevertheless, in a column that you wrote this spring, you argued that he should be included as part of baseball's Hall of Fame. Oh, absolutely, because you know baseball has inducted people. You know they're they're considered like builders of the game, right? So a lot of these commissioners are in. So I just don't understand how Fernando Valenzuela is not in there. I mean, he he changed everything, right? I mean, he really, again, the internationalization of the game. And I would argue, again, that Fernando really kind of opened that up. I, I think he changed, again, the trajectory of the Dodgers franchise completely. And so, yeah, to, in my opinion, absolutely, he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Thank you so much for this interview, Dylan. No, thank you for having me on. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, we talk about the movement to preserve Japanese-American concentration camps from World War II. 
Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Julia Turner. And our theme music is by Andrew Epin. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. Gracias.